Welcome to this Federalist Society faculty book podcast discussing Professor David Skeel's new book, When States Go Broke, The Origins, Context, and Solutions for the American States in Fiscal Crisis. Thank you for tuning in. When States Go Broke discusses the problem of fiscal crises in American states and the best way to meet the political and fiscal challenges they present. The book features insights from leading scholars in a variety of disciplines, it facilitates debate about the origin and context of the crises and what regimes bankrupt states should adopt. David Skeel, the S. Samuel Arsh Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, is joined by critical commenter Richard Hines, Professor of Law and Director of the John M. Olin Program in Law and Economics at the University of Richmond School of Law to discuss the book. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Skeel. I'm David Skeel, a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania and co-editor of the new book that we'll be talking about, When States Go Broke. I'll be talking about the book and, in particular, about the issue whether states should be permitted to file for bankruptcy with Richard Hines, the law professor at the University of Virginia. What we're planning to do is I'll speak first for six or seven minutes or so, and then Rich will talk, and then we'll just hopefully have a time to go back and forth and ask each other questions and and grill each other. So let me start by briefly introducing the book and the origins of the book. Two years ago, in late 2010, when Americans first became aware of the desperate financial condition of California, Illinois, and a number of other states, There was a very brief but at times fiery debate about whether Congress should pass a new bankruptcy law that would let states file for bankruptcy, as they currently cannot do. I wrote an article in the Weekly Standard that played a very small role in this debate. Much more importantly, Newt Gingrich, Jeb Bush, and a few other politicians announced that they thought state bankruptcy would be a good idea and that Congress should enact something along those lines. At the height of this debate, my co-editor for the book, a fine young scholar named Peter Conti Brown, suggested that we do a book gathering together a group of experts to talk about the financial crisis in the states. I thought it sounded like a great idea as well, and we started with a conference at Stanford at the law school there and then turned the papers into the book that we'll be talking about. Many of the essays in the book focus on this issue of state bankruptcy, whether it would be a good idea to let states file for bankruptcy or not, presenting a wide range of views on this issue. But a number of the other essays in the book focus on related issues such as the history of state financial crises and dynamics of state budgets and things of that sort. In this podcast, we're going to home in specifically on the state bankruptcy issue. Rich has written a very important article on the state bankruptcy issue, which, as you'll detect in his comments in just a minute or two, takes a somewhat different position than I do. Perhaps the best way to make the case for state bankruptcy is to start by asking why that brief, fiery debate and and what seemed at the time an exciting campaign to enact a state bankruptcy law failed as quickly as it started. The short answer is that it was floored by a one-two punch from the Democratic and then the Republican side of the aisle. The initial opposition came from Democrats who thought that this state bankruptcy idea was just a ploy to whack public employee unions, 
to ratchet back their contracts and to do something about their pensions. Many Republicans, on the other hand, got nervous because they feared that state bankruptcy would lead to a devastating bond market contagion. It seemed to me then, and it seems to me now, that both of those concerns were deeply mistaken. Although state bankruptcy clearly would be used to restructure public employee union contracts, and in some respects, even more importantly, pensions, the distribution of sacrifice actually would be much more equal in bankruptcy than it is outside of bankruptcy. Outside of bankruptcy, nearly all of the cuts are borne by one or two constituencies when there's a crisis, primarily public employees and the recipients of services. Inside bankruptcy, by contrast, there's a strong equality norm that would require a broader distribution of the sacrifice. The bond contagion fear is based largely on a belief that enactment of state bankruptcy would have a devastating effect on all bonds, not just bonds of the troubled state. But this assumes that the markets can't distinguish between the bonds of profligate states like California and Illinois, on the one hand, and better-run states like Iowa and North Carolina, on the other. But the markets can, and to the extent that the interest rates on bonds did increase a little bit as a result of a state bankruptcy law, this would be primarily because the bankruptcy option would decrease the pressure on the federal government to bail out the troubled states. It would be an alternative to a bailout, which in my book is a good thing. Thus, bankruptcy would provide a more equal distribution of the sacrifice, and it would also decrease the likelihood of a federal bailout. It also would provide a way to restructure obligations that really can't be restructured in a meaningful way outside of bankruptcy most importantly, out-of-control pension obligations. Now, before turning things over to Rich, let me say a word about state sovereignty. Some have argued that enacting a state bankruptcy regime would violate state sovereignty and would be unconstitutional for that reason. In my view, so long as the state bankruptcy framework was voluntary, that is, a state couldn't be thrown into bankruptcy against its will, and the framework didn't interfere with governmental operations in the state, it would be fully constitutional. The model for this is municipal bankruptcy, our bankruptcy framework for cities, which we already have and which was upheld as constitutional in 1938. With that, why don't I turn things over to Rich? Great. Hi, this is Rich Hines. I'm a law professor at the University of Virginia. Unlike David, I am a state employee and this, or a government employee, and this does hit close to home. David invited me to participate as a skeptic, and I'm happy to play the role. It's not that I don't think that bankruptcy should play a role in the resolution of a state's financial crisis, just that I'm not sure that we need a new federal bankruptcy chapter for states. I'm going to focus on two points. First, a state may be able to reduce its own expenditures by pushing its municipalities into bankruptcy, as David just told you municipalities can file for bankruptcy. Second, as George Triantis has argued, states may be able to synthesize their own bankruptcy procedure. One can make the case that that a state bankruptcy procedure that is part of a bankruptcy code would be superior to such a synthetic procedure, but I'm going to argue that this case is not that compelling. To understand the first point, you need to understand something about fiscal federalism. States can't file for bankruptcy, but as we noted, municipalities can. On average, grants to local governments account for about 30% of state expenditures, but the number is much higher in some states. In California, this figure is about 65%. 
In fact, this number understates the importance of fiscal federalism in an important way. According to the bankruptcy code, a municipality is any subdivision of a state. So therefore, the University of California, University of Virginia, other entities like that, those are municipalities. In one of the chapters in David's book notes that there are about close to 90,000 governments in the United States, cities, counties, school districts, water districts, etc. Many of these have their own long-term contracts, pensions, and other debts. To the extent that a state can seize control over these entities and force them through bankruptcy, it can reduce the cost that it would have to incur to accomplish its goals. In other words, states may already be able to use the bankruptcy code to help relieve their financial crisis. The second point is that states being able to synthesize a bankruptcy procedure arises from the fact that, for the most part, state obligations are creatures of state law. That is, a state could modify its obligations by simply passing statutes or, enact, or changing their constitutions to change their own laws. Now, a creditor could sue, claiming these modifications violate the contracts clause, but this is going to be a very difficult suit to win and to enforce. First, the 11th Amendment and sovereign immunity are going to make it very hard for the creditor to even bring a suit against the state. And even if they do bring the suit against the state, a court is going to apply a fairly flexible test asking whether the change in law was reasonable and necessary in light of the changed circumstances. And in doing so, a court could and should apply a standard that is very close to a bankruptcy standard and asking whether the pain is being shared equitably. Now, George Trianis takes this a step further, and I agree that states may be able to synthesize the procedure by adopting their own resolution mechanisms, just as they once did for municipalities. Now, he argues that these mechanisms may be superior to a federal chapter for states because the state would bear the costs of the procedure and thus have an incentive to adopt the, an efficient procedure. Now, I think this argument may be overstated a bit, after all, the federal system could give states some ability to alter their own debtor relief laws by, for example, issuing revenue bonds, bonds that, we, that are generally respected in government bankruptcies, municipal bankruptcy. And you can make some case that a federal system would be superior either because it allows for lower transactions costs. One can make other arguments in favor of a federal system. After all, Federal courts and bankruptcy courts in particular have jurisdictional advantages over state courts and thus may be able to resolve a state insolvency at a lower cost. On the other hand, transactions costs may play a beneficial role in these circumstances by increasing the ability of a state to make credible commitments. And finally, in David's proposal, he suggests that one of the roles of the federal system is that it might be able to solve impasses in the state political system by at least marginally shifting the balance of power between the uh, legislature and the governor, giving the governor the right to initiate the bankruptcy procedure and propose plans, giving the legislature the right to consult. Now, David notes that the case for some form of state bankruptcy surviving a constitutional challenge is strong. However, I will argue during the discussion period that the case for a system that shifts the political power within the state is a much harder case.
Let me jump in, if I can, with a quick question or two. And I, I want to bracket your last point, the point about shifting the balance of power and what the executive can and can't do. Could the governor of a state by herself file a bankruptcy petition or would that potentially be unconstitutional? I agree with you that that's a really tricky issue. And I'm a little shakier on those kinds of issues than some of the other issues. But backing up to where you were talking about uh, George Trianis' argument that states could make a bankruptcy law, they don't need Congress to make a bankruptcy law, and it's somewhat related to arguments that you've made. One big question I have about that is it's really hard for me to imagine a state like, say, California putting in place a bankruptcy law that is is going to cause some pain in California. I mean, the way I think about it is if I'm California, I know I'm a really important state. I think I can hold the federal government up. I don't think the federal government is willing to let me default. I think they'll bail me out. And so my fear is that the states were really concerned about the Californias and the Illinoises would never pass their own bankruptcy law because from their perspective, they're better off just putting a lot of pressure on on Congress. Are you more optimistic about the politics? I think I'm maybe more pessimistic about the politics in the <laughs> sense that if, if we don't think that a state is going to take steps, and, and I agree that maybe the full bore adopting its own composition mechanism, like Triana suggests, may be a little unlikely. States will take steps, you know, as, as states have done recently, to try to modify the laws to change the rights of their workers or bondholders or somebody else. And if a state is unwilling to do that, I think it may be unwilling to actually take the step of voluntarily filing for bankruptcy. If a state like California thinks that it can hold up the federal government for a bailout, I'm not sure I see the argument for why they will voluntarily file for a federal bankruptcy chapter. So the argument would be that you don't get either. So you, right. you, you wouldn't get them creating their own bankruptcy law. And even if there were a federal bankruptcy law, they wouldn't use it. So I think you are more pessimist than I am about the politics. I can imagine a world where, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger in California actually uses a bankruptcy law. But I I do agree that that is, um, that's one of the really tricky issues here is how much can you change the politics that have gotten the states into the mess? And I'm of the view that bankruptcy can move the ball forward, but I agree that that is a legitimate question. And and I agree that I could see someone like an Arnold Schwarzenegger or some other governor deciding that bankruptcy is a good idea. But here goes, this brings to the question of, can a bankruptcy procedure empower the governor to do this? And then once in bankruptcy, can it empower the governor to really take control and propose a plan that alters the rights of the various parties in bankruptcy without complying with the mechanisms that would be required under state law outside of bankruptcy? And that I, I'm much more doubtful about. Yeah, right? but I think I mean, those are those are very tricky issues. My my guess, not being a constitutional law expert, so my guess can be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. But I I think, given that the bankruptcy clause explicitly empowers Congress to enact federal bankruptcy laws, that Congress probably could set the terms of filing for bankruptcy. I think it's it, it strikes me as much more doubtful 
that Congress could change the terms of a bankruptcy plan, for instance, that Congress could give a bankruptcy court the power to authorize or to require a tax that would otherwise require a, a legislative vote. But I, I do think these are very, they're very tricky constitutional issues. There are constitutional issues within the state as well, right? Because many states will have constitutional provisions, state constitutional provisions that protect, say, the right for the pension holders. And would the bankruptcy procedure allow the plan to modify those rights without having the state actually go through the procedures to modify its state constitution? That's that's a difficult question. Yeah, I I am more confident on that one, at least to the extent the question is protection of pensions or protection of bonds. There's a state constitutional provision that says we think bond rights are really important. I'm more confident that the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which says that federal laws uh, trump state laws, would give a bankruptcy law supremacy with with respect to that. Um, I'm more shaky on some of of the other issues, but I, I think those are all open issues. So let me ask a different question, sort of related to to some of the things we've already been talking about. I really like your suggestion that one partial solution to the kinds of problems states are having now is municipalities filing for bankruptcy. And we have seen more municipalities filing for bankruptcy recently. And you suggest that states could address a lot of their problems by pushing municipalities into bankruptcy. Why haven't we seen that? Do you have a theory as to why we don't generally see states saying, you know, Michigan isn't saying, Detroit, you need to be in bankruptcy? Well, Michigan has enacted legislation giving it the right to seize control of its municipalities and push them into bankruptcy if the municipality's financial condition deteriorates substantially. And that is, you know, a subject of active dispute in Michigan, for example. I don't think it's become more widespread just because I don't think that the state fiscal crisis has really hit that level yet in the sense that we've been talking about pensions and about bond market debt. As a practical matter, you know, bond market debt for the states is just is not that significant. You know, even the most troubled states like the Illinois and the Californias, they spend somewhere on the order of 3 or 6% of their budget on their debt service requirements. So even if you wiped out their their bond market or capital market indebtedness entirely, it wouldn't have a material effect on their cash flows. The pension indebtedness, that is much more, I mean, it's getting closer and closer in time to where it will really start to affect us. But that's much more of a long-term problem. And I think we're only now beginning to start to feel the crisis. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit more pessimistic than some as to the severity of the pension crisis, partly because I, I agree with the critics who think that current accounting rules allow the government to vastly understate the size of their pension obligations, just as accounting rules once allowed companies to understate the cost of the options that they were granting to their executives. So I just think that we have not seen a state try to do this because the problem has not reached a crisis level that leads to enough immediacy where they would want to take severe action. And uh, are you predicting that it will? And another way to ask that question is one of the things people debate in this area a lot or talk about a lot is 
whether these issues are cyclical or structural. Some people who think that state bankruptcy is a bad idea and, and really doing anything is a bad idea are, are of the view this is just a cycle. We go through cycles. Other people think that there are structural problems that are more than just just cyclical. Do do you have a view on that debate? I don't. I don't know the answer. Is my my short. I don't know. Uh, I'm a bankruptcy professor. I'm not a state government finance professor. And so I don't want to make a bold prediction as to the likely end result of this crisis. Ultimately, we have various interest groups, taxpayers, recipients of state commitments, be they pension holders, bond holders, et cetera, or recipients of other government spending. And we need to find a way to balance uh, each of these. The cost of pensions is being undercounted, which is causing governments to not set aside enough money to cover the cost of future pensions. Whether this structural problem could perhaps get fixed before it becomes too late. What, what about you, David? Do you think this is a structural or, or cyclical? <laughs> That's what you call uh, turning the tables. Well, the reason I asked the question, one reason I asked the question is there's a report you may have seen and, and some listeners may have seen that came out uh, in the summer of 2012 by that was overseen by Paul Volcker, the former Fed chairman, and Richard Ravitch, who played a big role in pulling New York City out of bankruptcy a couple decades decades ago. And one of the things that really struck me about their report, which was a report on the state of the finances of the states and, and some of the problems, one of the things that really struck me is they very strongly emphasize that it is a structural problem, not just a cyclical problem. So that they took the position or take the position that these problems, particularly the pension problem, I think, are not problems that we can just assume will go away. Whether they weren't dramatic interventions can be debated, and, and Volcker and Ravitch don't really call for particularly draconian or dramatic or exciting interventions, but they do very strongly take the position it's a structural problem. And I'm of that view as well, and it seems to me one really attractive uh, part of bankruptcy, although it might be scary to some, is there's a very strong argument that pensions can be restructured in bankruptcy to the extent that they're underfunded. And it's fairly clear that that cannot realistically be done outside of bankruptcy. So to the extent that there is a problem that ultimately is going to lead us toward a catastrophe, that strikes me as an argument for a state bankruptcy regime, you know, putting aside the question whether politically you can get one or not. Let me ask you a question. Sure. So you make the argument about the bond market contagion that any rise in the interest rates is likely to reflect a decreased chance of a federal bailout. How confident are you of that in the sense that isn't it also possible that the that the interest rates could rise even if there were no possibility of a bailout, just a simple increase in the likelihood of default? After all, we haven't had a bailout. You know, we had we had states fail or states default on their debt in the mid to late nineteenth century without a federal bailout that did thereafter lead to a rise in interest rates. Although I think there was some question of whether there would be a federal bailout or not, although the, the likelihood of a of a bailout after the independence period, where that was very much a discussion on the table, 
was lower in the middle and late 19th century, to be sure, than it is today. I think it's possible that there could be some component of an interest rate rise could be due to a marginally larger probability of a default, but I really think that's likely to be a secondary factor for a couple of reasons. One is the one I mentioned earlier, and that is I think the real interest rate increase where there is one would be based on the risk of the particular state, not just a general overall greater risk of default, but the fact that a few states are in serious trouble. And I think we want rates to be higher for states that are in serious trouble. I think that's would be the biggest component of any increase in rate. We've also seen in the past, I wouldn't want to put too much weight on this, but we've also seen in the past situations where a restructuring of debt has decreased the risk to bondholders. So that if states were in such bad shape that absent bankruptcy, they would simply default, it's possible that having bankruptcy in place would be good for bondholders rather than bad. And in fact, one of the famous Supreme Court cases, a case from the 1940s that you alluded to when you were talking about states providing their own restructuring mechanisms, is a case that involved a situation where the value of the bonds went up when it looked like they were going to be restructured. So it seems to me with respect to overall effect of default, apart from the riskiness of a few states, it's not clear which way it goes. Maybe the risk of default goes up a little bit, but it's also possible that there'll be a countervailing effect because it's easier to do a restructuring, and the restructuring might make everyone better off. So I think those kinds of factors are sort of cross-cutting. And bottom line, I think that the markets are able to tell good risks from bad risks well enough so that well-run states won't be hurt. And it's important to keep in mind that in the city context, as we've both discussed, we already have a bankruptcy regime, and that hasn't set city bond prices through the roof. And let me ask another question. Following up on your your discussion of pensions, you assert that pensions can't be restructured outside of bankruptcy. I'd I'd just like to say a little more. Is that because you think that courts would prevent a state from modifying its pensions or because you think it's politically infeasible or both? This is a great question. And I do think there are political issues about restructuring pensions, but I want to put that to one side. I was talking about the legal issues. And what I had in mind there is, under the laws of most states, it's very difficult to restructure pension promises. And there have been a number of cases dealing with this recently. I I know you're familiar with at least some of them, probably the same ones I'm familiar with, where states have been able to tinker with pensions. They've been able, in some cases, to do things like uh, remove cost of living increases for current employees. But doing anything about already promised pensions is essentially impossible under state law, among other things because of the Contracts Clause of the Constitution, which you've already talked about. I believe that it would be possible to restructure unfunded pensions in bankruptcy, that with a pension that hasn't been fully funded, the pension would be protected in bankruptcy up to the extent of the funding, but to the extent it was 
unfunded, that would be an unsecured claim in bankruptcy, and it would be subject to restructuring. So that's the point I was making. And I, I should acknowledge that it's a somewhat controversial point. Not everybody would agree with me, but that's the argument I was making. And as far as the your assertion that bankruptcy is a better forum for equitably sharing the pain amongst the various constituents, how do you respond to the arguments of those such as Adam Levitin, who would argue that bankruptcy here is being sought it's a sword to be used by one constituent group, the taxpayers, against another, the workers. I think Adam is wrong. That's <laughs> how I would respond, and I would say it to his face, uh, as, as I think I have said it to, uh, to his face. It is an understandable impression because a lot of the politicians in particular who were advocating for state bankruptcy or have been advocating for state bankruptcy have emphasized that it can be used to restructure collective bargaining agreements and things of that sort. So it's an understandable impression, but I'd have a couple responses. One is states have been going after collective bargaining agreements even without uh, bankruptcy. We've seen uh, governors in, in Wisconsin most controversially do it, and in New York and Connecticut and other places. So uh, bankruptcy isn't the only place that that happens. My other response is the one I made earlier, and that is – Outside of bankruptcy, public employees are the principal target. Inside of bankruptcy, they're, they're one target among any, or to put it in less pejorative terms, the sacrifice is more likely to be shared. I mean, it is possible that in bankruptcy, the state would focus primarily on public employee obligations, but there's a, as you know, there's a really strong equality of creditors norm. And, and a for instance on that, in the Vallejo city bankruptcy a couple years ago, the bankruptcy judge allowed Vallejo to terminate its collective bargaining agreement with its, its public employees, but it really emphasized that other constituencies were sharing the sacrifice. And I really think that would be the standard with respect to public employee benefits. So I, I, I understand where Adam's coming from, but I, I really think bankruptcy is more equal rather than less equal. And would one of those constituencies be the taxpayers? So that are you thinking that a judge would deny the discharge unless the government raised taxes to cover some of the obligations? Well, that's a tricky question, as you know, whether the extent to which a proposed bankruptcy plan that doesn't raise taxes to try to help fund the state going forward or with municipalities, the city, if a municipality is in bankruptcy. Very uncertain question whether judges could or can or should pressure the state to raise taxes. And I think that's a really hard question to answer in the abstract. I think it depends on it would depend on what's going on with the state. But I do think that a judge could refuse to confirm a plan that didn't look like it was serious about addressing the state's problems. And if if the state weren't making any effort to raise tax revenues, that, that might be one data point. I, I think it's hard to reach a conclusion about that in the abstract. And let me turn the table on you with that. What is, what is your feeling about that issue? We talk about equitable sharing of the pain. I don't think that other debts are really that significant for the state. I mean, certainly they do have debt, but a lot of the debt is going to be 
revenue bonds, effectively secured credit. And if we're, I mean, this is a hypothetical system for states, but certainly municipal bankruptcy respects the rights of revenue bonds, grants treats them like secured creditors. So really, the lion's share of the state debt is going to be comprised of its pension obligations and its obligations to its long-term contracts to its workers. So if we're talking about sharing the the pain, it's really between these long-term commitments to workers and former workers, to the taxes charged to taxpayers, and to the recipients of ongoing services such as school children, et cetera. And that's a difficult political question as to how to balance these decisions. And I'm not sure that courts should really get involved at all. It's not clear to me that a system that says we want to have bankruptcy to decide to what extent a state can get out of these decisions is really better than a system where we had strong forms of the 11th Amendment and sovereign immunity, which really just lets the political system decide who bears the pain. Just a couple quick reactions to that. One is, you noted earlier that bond debt in percentage terms is not a huge portion of state obligations. But it clearly is an important financial obligation. So when you talk about the obligations that need to be part of the discussion in bankruptcy, you need to add bonds. And certainly folks who are afraid of restructuring bonds have been critics of bankruptcy. So I I would want to throw them in as well. As far as bankruptcy is good or bad for them, I think that is a fair question. I guess what I would say is if you have a state whose finances are so troubled that bankruptcy is an option, it's important to think about what the alternative is. And the alternative may be just a complete default, which is going to lead to a lot of court cases about a lot of different things, a lot of frustrated claimants, because it's difficult to sue a state, as you've pointed out. But in the absence of bankruptcy, what you get with a state that is in such deep crisis that bankruptcy might be thinkable is potentially just a complete default and, from my perspective, complete disaster. And when you put it in that perspective, I think bankruptcy looks fairly attractive. You might have some worries about how much a court is doing as compared to the normal political process, but you're going to have courts involved anyway. And, you know, we do have that analogy of municipal bankruptcy, which where we already see these sorts of things going on. So I don't see that as a dispositive argument against bankruptcy, although I do acknowledge it's the sort of thing you want to think about. Although municipalities don't have sovereign immunity, most localities don't have sovereign immunity and states do. Sure, Uh, sure. And so it's just a question of, right, I was comparing it to a world where sovereign immunity actually kept those suits from occurring if the state so chose. But you're right. That's an open question. We haven't had a state default in a while. And certainly the last time they did in 38, the creditors did prevail and were able to get some remedy against Arkansas. Although, as Clay Gillette notes in your book, it's unclear if courts would follow that precedent today. That was just a district court case. And it's unclear if it was even right at the time. So I guess we come to the end of this discussion with Almost as many questions we started with, and so I guess what I would say is is my final words is, these are hard issues. I don't deny that there are good arguments for the status quo, good arguments for other proposals, good arguments against state bankruptcy, and you've made a number of them here and in your article. There are a number of them in the book as well. 
My bottom line is that when you put all of this together, bankruptcy seems to me worth a chance. Bankruptcy offers enough benefits, and hopefully it would not need to be used, but if it needed to be used, it does strike me as better than the alternative of either a complete collapse on the one hand or a massive federal bailout on the other. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? I guess my final thought is that I'm a skeptic of a new bankruptcy chapter for states, but not necessarily an opponent. Its viability rests, I think, in large part on the ability of this bankruptcy to alter the political power within the state, either between the legislature and the governor or allowing the political actors to do things that the state constitution would not otherwise allow them to do. And I think there are good legal arguments that suggest that this may not be constitutional. And there are good federalism policy arguments that would suggest that maybe this should not be constitutional either. Thank you for listening to this Faculty Book Podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.